0: in a time that is volatile. Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the heart-centered leadership podcast. And this week's theme seems to be all about health and medical and leadership on those two different platforms. And I'm really delighted this afternoon to interview Dr. Paul Wood's. He's the president and chief executive officer of the hospital that's in my city in London, Ontario, and it is London Health Sciences Centre. So, Dr. Paul, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Deb.
0: Paul, I have, to be, I have to be transparent and tell you that since you've uh, returned to Canada from the US, I have had numerous people tell me what a wonderful leader you are. So I wanted to preface that before I started asking any questions and, and tell you it's a real treat for me to virtually meet you and uh, get this opportunity to interview you and get to know you a little bit.
1: Uh, well, again, thank you. And those are very kind words.
0: I wanted to know at what age... You knew that you were interested in medicine and wanted to become a doctor.
1: You know that's uh, that's an easy question for me to to answer because actually, as long as I can remember, I wanted to to uh, be a, a doctor. I think there was a brief period of time when I was a teenager when perhaps I liked animals more than people, so I thought for a while I was going to be a veterinarian, but that was about a, a two or three years sort of. Um, Uh, detour. uh, and, And really, as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor.
0: And I wanted to know, was there a family member or someone that you held in high regard who really exemplified leadership for you? Or where did you get that window of opportunity where you thought maybe someday when I'm done practicing, I'm going to make that transition into a leadership role?
1: Um, you know, there, there really wasn't anyone, and, and I often sort of jokingly, uh, you know, um, state that, that uh, one of the, probably the biggest thing that, that uh, made me want to go into leadership was that I thought people weren't doing a very good job, and I could say it even more strongly than that, but I won't. Uh, but I, I just saw a lot of the shortcomings of, of uh, leadership and leaders in the healthcare world. And I think rather than uh, you know checking out or acting out or um, you know just ultimately being frustrated and angry all the time, I, I was sort of uh, uh, you know a, a lived out Gandhi's world in, in trying to be the change I wanted to see in the world. So I I literally went into leadership not because I saw a great leader that I wanted to follow, uh, but because I, I saw especially in healthcare, which is such a complex. And it's such an intimate world that that maybe I could do better than some other people uh, were doing.
0: It's interesting and it, and it leads in nicely to my next question. I often see in healthcare, non-clinical roles, a lot of accidental leadership. And I wanted to know if you would weigh in on that in your observation. I would love your opinion because I, I, I do a lot of executive coaching with, executives and C-suite leaders like yourself and it's a conversation that comes up a lot and I feel there's there's some difficulty around discipline and structure because it's hard if someone is your superior but you don't have full respect for the stature that maybe they've achieved so I just wanted to know if you'd shed a little bit of light on that and if you see a difference between the work you did in Michigan and now being back here in Ontario, Canada.
1: It feels like that's a PhD dissertation to answer that but I'll I'll try to give you some thoughts on it. So so it's interesting you talk about accidental leadership and I've always differentiated between leadership roles and leaders. Uh, There are many people who hold a leadership role but people don't want to or don't follow them very effectively and there are lots of people who are leaders who don't have sort of formally designated leadership roles. And one of the things, you know, I I think of members of the team I have here and people that I came across when I was in in the U.S. who had, uh, because of the fact that they were just natural leaders, people followed them, uh, they were able to influence outcomes, align people uh, to a vision and that sort of thing. They actually went into uh, leadership roles, eventually getting to very high levels in organizations, um, not intentionally because they had set out to Uh, Take on a leadership role, but they they ended up actually getting there, and it's it's interesting. You mentioned executive coaching. I highly recommend it uh, for every executive. But I've also had an executive coach my entire career because sometimes the the uh, sort of the adaptive leadership skills, but more of the technical leadership skills, just associated with you know large budgets and leading large groups of people aren't something that, that, for instance, somebody who's a, a physician or my chief operations officer here is a pharmacist, um, they aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily uh, acquire the skill sets through the normal professional channels. Uh, and as such, they, uh, uh, they, they often have to acquire those after they've acquired a fairly, uh, you know, sort of uh, significant leadership position. So, so executive, uh, executive coaching is something that, uh, that I still engage in and probably will my entire career. Getting to your question, you know, there are a lot of business di- differences. Uh, so the delivery of healthcare whether you're in, uh, you know, Grand Rapids, Michigan, or London, Ontario, the the care that's delivered, there really isn't much different about it. Maybe there's more American reliance on technology uh, and that sort of thing. But ultimately it's, it's, uh, you know, it's about uh, a relationship between a person with a need and a health system through a provider who is able to satisfy that need in order to produce the best outcome. That, ki- that kind of mental model, I think, is the same in both places. I would also go to the other end and say from a leadership perspective that's the, you know, the, that the outcomes uh, of leadership in terms of aligning groups of people to you know, deliver on expectations and outcomes uh, that uh, all agree on a sort of a pre-specification pre-spec- basis are what should be delivered. It's sort of in between, it's the business model that is very different in the US and in Canada. And uh, and just to be clear, there are probably uh, uh, almost as many frustrations with, with some of the challenges associated with that here than there are uh, on the US side of the border. Uh, and for instance, just not having nearly as many levers uh, that a person can pull in order to be able to do ultimately what we have to do, which is about delivering outcomes, the, the needs that our population served have within a sort of a, a a limited, a finite resource pool, whether that's human or whether that's hospital beds or whether those are dollars. Uh, but but leadership is ultimately very similar in, in uh, both places. I did not find a huge amount of difference. The technical skill is quite a bit different.
0: Well, I can join you in that comment. I Prior to coaching, I was a community-based case manager and I, I did a lot of neurotrauma. And at the time I was involved, there was a lot of pediatric brain injury and they didn't have the specialists there anymore. They had packed up their practice and moved to the US. So given the trauma and the state of the emergency, sometimes these kids couldn't be airlifted to our hospital here in London and they would be sent to uh, sick kids in Detroit. So it was really uh, a fun time for me to understand the different dynamics of the health systems, like you say, and case managing in another country, even though we're an hour away from the border, and then transitioning back, It was a lesson in uh, out of province OHIP claims 101, but uh, wouldn't have traded it for the world. It was a lot of work at the time. So I really, I really regard that point in uh, what you said about both health both health systems. What do you think, what, I guess what's the easiest way to ask you this, what imperfection do you feel that you have brought to being a heart-centered leader?
1: What imperfection do I personally possess that have? um, Okay, well, I I guess I ultimately see myself as, uh, you know, taking the the topic title as an incredibly imperfect uh, being uh, and recognize that I bring my own uh, biases and my own assumptions, my own preferences uh, to decision-making, and, and I think somehow how that translates is, uh, is impatience. And uh, so I often uh, find myself impatient with others who don't believe or think or feel uh, as I do. And so, uh, you know, my own personal journey as I'm well into the second half of, of middle age has been uh, to try to seek to listen, uh, to listen to understand, uh, and uh, to try to uh, identify the impatience that I have and to to essentially name it, which is i'm in, sometimes i 'm impatient because things don 't go too quickly enough for me, and I think everybody that i 've worked with in leadership would say that 's uh, probably uh, number one or, or two on the list of of uh, things that I struggle with, but I think also to try to uh, empathize. Uh, with uh, whatever group of people I'm with that maybe doesn't believe or think or feel or see things the way I do and uh, to sit back and to uh, uh, disconnect the catecholamines and the uh, limbic system and the autonomic nervous system and instead listen and uh, and uh, try to learn something and then also to uh, to try to uh, to align with people not as a compromise, but to say what's the best solution, and maybe they have the best solution.
0: Well, I think that's a great answer, and being open and vulnerable and just all those soft skills, and you had mentioned before about personality or soft skills versus technical skills and why do some physicians or specialists who want to no longer practice or have a a clinical role and switch over to leadership, why do you think some of them have a difficult time managing people and being resistant to maybe work on soft skills and their delivery?
1: That's a, that's a great question. And I've, I've coached quite a number of uh, physicians who want to become physician leaders or physician executives. And it's, it's a, it's, it's a relatively unique, if not completely unique, value proposition. And uh, unfortunately, what tends to happen is people come down on one side or the other. So either they become a sort of a, a physician, pro-physician, union person, in which case, you know, the, their, their failure to sort of understand the sort of the, the, the group of stakeholders and the group of um, sort of customers that have to be satisfied by the performance of a health system or a hospital or a clinic or whatever. So I I don't see a whole lot of value to that first group. On the other hand, if a person who's like me, who spent the vast majority of my career as a physician, uh, forgets the interface that patients have with care and the vulnerability uh, that they have with that and the fear, and then also uh, the challenges that a physician has, then they're basically just a, uh, a leader or a manager or an executive uh, or an operator who isn't very good at it because they haven't done it all that long in their life. So the, so the, uh, the real intricacy is in putting those two perspectives together and, and to be able to think about what does good look like in terms of outcomes? How do I also bring the perspective of the physician or my knowledge based on, in my case, almost 30 years of, man- of looking after patients, of the vulnerability patients have in that, so th- not exactly answering your question, but getting to the what is unique about physician leaders, I think part of the problem with physicians and soft skills is we aren't necessarily taught to be leaders. If if you and and I think that that was definitely the case. I I got into medical school in 1981. I graduated in 1985. We were really all about academics when I. Um, when i was interviewing uh, medical uh, potential medical students at the university of calgary back about 10 years ago it was more than academics but a lot of it was was in accomplishments you know volunteerism and that sort of thing and the notion of physicians as leaders uh, is, is still something that I don't think is well enough developed. You know, there are some uh, clinical specialties. So if you look at intensive care units, they're very much a team sport. Emergency departments, very much a team sport. Operating rooms, the, the physicians in those sort of uh, specialty settings have learned on that, although the older ones still may sometimes uh, try to understand the difference between sort of command and control. And I, who is it, Daniel Goldman's six leadership styles, they, you know, some of them still want the command and control. But for the most part, I think physicians in those particular specialties have done a great job of, of becoming much more sophisticated leaders. So I think there's a leadership skill gap that is just because often you get to your 40s or 50s by the time you're in leadership and you've never really had to lead. Um, and the other thing is, is we were taught from a very young age that that if everything goes wrong, it's all on us, and there's this tendency of sort of clamping down and taking control as opposed to delegating, develop team um, competencies. I I would say the one thing that physician leaders have the biggest challenge with is delegating, you know, to define the problem and to assign it uh, based on, uh, uh, you know, sort of... uh, deliverables and metrics and that sort of thing. So, so I think there are a lot of reasons why it's challenging for physicians. When they get it and when they come into it, we have a couple of, a, a number of great examples in LHSC. It's just fantastic. And I worked with a whole bunch at Trinity as well. It's just fascinating and, and, and almost breathtaking watching as they start to understand what the differences are and they start to incorporate those skills.
0: Well, and that's lovely to hear. And I, I can certainly tell you from the one, the physicians and specialists that I've had the privilege to work with, there's been just the desire to, to just be a better person and not get wrapped up with initials after their name and stature. They just truly wanted to step up and, and be a really, really good leader, which is wonderful to, to hear and to see. So I'm happy to hear that. If we talk about the principle of of authenticity, and I've heard this described uh, in your reputation, if you will, how do you consistently show respect for others on your executive team?
1: Um, yeah, that's, so I think uh, how I hope I show respect and, and, and I think that uh, it would be fair to say this has been a journey uh, and it continues to be a journey with me and it will probably be a journey that's never uh, over it has been uh, what I what I hope to do is to empower people to be their best self in their role and and I think honestly uh, you know sort of uh, uh, stating a negative I think leaders who are micromanagers have got the least out of me and I think that uh, uh, being a, a, a micromanager would be about the worst title that anybody would put on me. So I think respecting them, that uh, if they understand you know, what, are, what is it the job that we are trying to accomplish, what's the problem we are trying to solve, to uh, enlist them as partners in crafting the solution set and then empowering them to deliver on that. And of course, with that comes the accountability to deliver on it. And, and it's something that I'm big on is accountability. I think that that is uh, hopefully how I would best show respect for the people that I lead with, for instance, on my executive leadership team. Um, Authenticity, you know, is a word. It's interesting. I I did a, a master's at Dartmouth College back in the, uh, 2006, 2007, and and we talked a lot about with uh, with Paul Betalden, who was the founder of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, about authentic leadership and and uh, what that actually meant. And you know, it's distilled down to a relatively sort of simple operational definition: is uh, you know, do do what you say you're going to do and be who you say you are. And and to be transparent and vulnerable at that place, and and uh, I I think it's hard to go wrong if you do this. I do that. I think if leaders uh, try to please uh, or try to overpromise or try to uh, you know in the negative to to mislead or deceive, then uh, then I think that's when authenticity becomes a problem. And and so you know you hear uh, you know, uh, just, you know, another, uh, you know, sort of a fat cat or overpaid bureaucrat or just an administrator said with a sneer and a, uh, you know, uh, disdain in the voice. It's, it's, you know, some of it is, is, uh, based on a sort of a cliche or or avatars of leadership that have been there before. But I think sometimes it's been because leaders weren't who they said they were. Uh, and, and the proof of, uh, you know, the evidence of that showed that they weren't who they said they were. Uh, or they said that they were going to do things that they had no intention of doing or had no way of doing. And that's something I've tried to uh, have uh, danger Will Robinson moments is is if somebody is asking me to do something or deliver something. And, and of course, we want to please. And so there's been that, that you know, tendency of, of, of wanting to answer them in the affirmative. But, you know, having to, to have the red light flash and say, I'd love to be able to promise you that, but I don't think I can deliver on that. You know, why don't we talk about what we can deliver on and I'll help you to understand why we can't do that. And it, it is hard to do because we're all pleasers, but uh, that's, that's how I've tried to lead.
0: Well, and always, always having that healthy balance and ensuring the right boundaries in place help with that as well. Now, you mentioned you're on, you're on part two of life. I like to call it phase two. I think it's the best phase and I like to end the podcast with kind of four fun questions where I just ask and and you just tell me what's on the top of your mind. So my first question is, what dream do you have, Paul, that you still would love to accomplish?
1: Well, maybe it's uh, it's not specific enough, but I dream of being part of building a health system that truly delivers uh, uh, on what the people that we serve need and in a way that's satisfying and that doesn't burn out our uh, providers and caregivers and is something that's sustainable. And I would uh, just love to be able to see the bow put on that sometime
0: before I die. That That might be part of my my answer for question four but I'll, I'll leave you for a minute on that one. My, my second question is where is the most favorite place that you have visited on earth and what did you love about it?
1: I would uh, have to say uh, the Canadian Rockies. Uh, I lived in um, Cochrane, Alberta for a few years and uh, going up uh it to uh you know lake louise uh, or the uh some of the mountain passes between lake louise and banff. Um I think the the magnificence of it, the the raw wildness of it. Um there was uh when I was there certainly a sense of being part of nature as opposed to isolated from nature or dominating and really feeling part of uh, part of creation, a piece of creation there.
0: I have to agree. Alberta's a beautiful, beautiful province. Now, my third question, I have to preface a little bit. So in my previous business model, I had mentioned to you, I was a case manager and I met a lot of executives who were off on short-term disability claims and some of them were very, very sick and I did lose some of them. And it really had me think about I no longer wanted to be a generalist in this type of role, but be a preventionist and and really started educating people when I moved into coaching on self-care and and really feel like it's the foundational language of my brand. And I know how important it is as a C-suite leader to model that. So what is your daily self-care regime that There's no negotiation that you do to look after yourself and model for your staff.
1: Well, this is, uh, this is brand new. And, and so, um, you know, uh, I have recently, I recently uh, became quite ill, uh, not of COVID, but during the COVID crisis requiring hospitalization and ultimately surgery. So I think that was a time of great self-reflection to say, am I modeling that? Am I taking good care of myself? And, and, you know, the answer when I, uh, when I looked in the mirror was no, I, I'm not and I wasn't. And so uh, you have a relatively in front of you here, uh, despite my uh, uh, relatively uh, mature age, um, really a, a person who's committed to self-care and to modeling it. And some of it is um, uh, behaviors, I guess, that are mine, but I don't mind sharing. So um, in terms of uh, 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 regular exercise, um, I'm not gonna compete in the Boston Marathon, uh, but I am uh, uh, committed to exercise. I'm committed to a healthy diet. I'm committed to getting enough rest. And uh, some of that's hard for people to see, but some of it also plays out in, we have a problem in uh, in leadership of uh, you know logging onto the computer on Saturday morning, firing off a bunch of emails, doing a couple of powerpoints, uh, putting together a presentation, uh, sending off a couple of word documents, logging off for the afternoon, then logging back on on Sunday afternoon, and that is something that's very visible. When I was in my previous role, I was um, uh, aware that people. Uh, So I could tell people that, oh, you guys shouldn't work on the weekend. Well, when the boss starts sending off emails from, uh, you know, 8 a.m. through, uh, you know, noon on Saturday morning, then from two in the afternoon through seven o'clock on Sunday evening, it's easy for me as their leader to say, oh, no, you don't have to answer now. But what are the sort of the hidden messages or the implicit messages? So I think, uh, you know, sort of uh, modeling good behavior about separating uh, work and, uh, and uh, not work is really important. And, uh, you know, things like making time for family and making time for vacation uh, and that sort of thing is, is something I don't think I did well enough before and uh, I'm committed to doing uh, better at now and I, I hope I do do better in the future.
0: Well, I wish you could see my face because I'm, I'm smiling ear to ear and I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And I'm happy to hear that you're recovering and doing well. And you're right, it is probably one of the most things that we see as executive coaches and I always believe people pay a price and success comes with a price and it's all about balancing it and putting in the right supports and the inbox will always be full which i'm sure you know even when you leave on vacation and come back there's there's always lots to do even when we're not present so that uh, that just makes my whole day hearing that, and my last question is, and you and you partially answered it uh, with the first question, but what do you want your legacy to be? And maybe if it's partly what you answered for question one, is there something on the personal side?
1: yeah, um, I think I think that's relatively easy for me to answer. What I hope is that what people remember most about me. You know, after I have uh, moved on to something else or moved on to uh, uh, whatever is next uh, beyond life, is is uh, that I'm a person who cared about people, um, whether it was the patients that we serve, the uh, physicians that provide that care, the nurses that provide that care, the physiotherapists. But even uh, you know people who are in support services in in uh, our porters. I love our porters at LHSC, They've got tons of personality. They always say hi. But I w- that would be the if people said yeah. He always you know stopped to say hi. Always made eye contact. Uh, always forgot my name because I forgot everybody's name, uh, which I may be an age-related thing. But but tried on the names and stuff like that. I I hope that that's how I'm remembered. The accomplishments are great. Maybe that's you know something that that you know you put on a a tombstone. But when people talk about you, I hope that people remember me as a person who uh, has cared about them uh, as human beings, and uh, and and that it showed in how I acted and behaved and, and made decisions as well.
0: Well, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I had heard what an amazing leader you were, that you were a heart-centered leader. Uh, Several people said, Deb, you need to get Paul on the podcast. So I want to thank you for leading our hospital and doing so well during these times that we've had with COVID-19. And happy to hear you're doing well and recovering and back to work. And it was just an honor to virtually meet you and looking forward to, uh, maybe a six feet away face to face someday and, uh, really appreciate your time, Paul.
1: You're very welcome. And, and thank you for inviting me. It's, uh, it's always uh, very uh, enjoyable to be able to talk about my journey and I appreciate being able to share it.
0: Well, I always end the podcast with five elements and that is to follow your heart, have passion, do your best, know your truth, and be in love with the journey. This is Deb Crow. Thank you for joining me on the Imperfect Heart-Centered Leader Podcast.